1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the program. We are your hosts, Aaron and Matthew Miller. Today we're going to do a part two to the house of Rapha. We're going to delve ever deeper into these remnant of the Raphaim, as mentioned in the biblical text. So, you can delve into history and look at the mythologies and You can come to a pretty good reckoning in your mind that what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, verse 6 and 19, verse 5, that, uh, well, even Matthew 18 and uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that a matter must be established on no fewer than two witnesses. Now, when you look through the historical mythologies, boy, does this kind of ring true? You can't believe everything that you read in the mythology, but you realize, well, let's just take the universal flood. All mythology speak to this. When you get past the two, you realize that once you've established two witnesses that are giving you a chronology of sorts, that probably is from a historical activity uh, being proved there. But we have to come to grips with this second incursion. Who, what, where, when, why. Certain
2: things had to have happened. Yeah, and I recently came to the conclusion that, I mean, we were talking the other, I mean, on a previous show, it seemed, it it came off as seeming that if there was a survivor of the flood, this was to underroot the concept of a second incursion. And I recently came to the conclusion that that's not the case. That both could happen, have happened. That there could have been a survivor, Nephilim, from the Flood, and a second incursion. And they came, both of these come hand in hand. Because by the fifth generation, we figured out that the genes of the giants would entirely... The DNA have would have entirely disappeared from the blood by the fifth generation, and that was what was uh, what these texts seem to imply. So I had been doing a study on seeing if this if there was a giant survivor, what would be the genealogy of his, and I just put together a bunch of sources to try and figure out what this was. Now the issue is is that um, a lot of these sources were not. Um, in the Bible, a lot of them were not Christian, a lot of them were not sourced in that, and there's, yeah, I can understand that's controversial, but understand that um, before the Assyrian, the Assyrians set up the written language, they came up with the first written language we know of, um, and before then, it was all oral, all oral traditions. And by the time um, that God wrote the Torah through Moses, before then, um, people began to see the dangers of oral tradition. This was why the Mishnah and the Midrash ended up having to be written down. The Jews tried to make it only uh, oral tradition for so long, but once they saw the language was at stake, They had to turn it into oral tradition. They had to write it down, I mean. So, the problem with oral tradition is that, you know, faulty human memory. You know, a human, if they write down something right when it happens, then that's not going to change. But memory of a human is so bad that if they try to pass this on with oral tradition for so long, it gets degraded. And... Um, this was why the written language was ever invented. And uh, when people started doing this, um, over time, that becomes passed into legend and mythology. And so there is some truth be- behind the mythologies and the legends and the pagans. But it was degraded over time and polluted through you know various things so we have to take where like my dad said we had to take two different witnesses or more who agree the of certain events that happened before the flood and there's an astounding number that agree with certain accounts that we're going to go on
1: let's clarify uh you stated that after four or five generations, the the bloodline would be cleaned up, correct?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All right, this is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 5, the ninth verse. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, take note. This is part of Parsi literally just come out and told you this is where your mythologies come from, Aaron. A lot of people don't open their eyes and realize what's being stated. It's these Nephilim bloodlines that was being worshipped. That's who you need to reckon them with. So that's who you're going to look to. In the mythologies you're looking for, you're looking for
2: these, these, uh, these Nephilim offspring. Yeah. And we can see even cl- intensely clearly in um, Greek mythology, Zeus and all of them were, were basically not viewed as, you know, gods who existed from the beginning. No, these were actually Nephilim because they were descendants of the gods before. Right. So these weren't the eternal beings, the which we would understand as angels, the ones who were worshipped as the gods were called, um, were what we would call Nephilim, but what they would call the Titans, those would be better reckoned to as angels. Mm-hmm. So when we say that, um, what does it mean? Um, why does it say the third or fourth generation? Well, we, um, so a little, uh, little description on hu- on human reproduction or reproduction in any creature is that you have a set of pairs in each cell of your body of uh, chromosomes. All humans have 44 uh, chromosomes and um, and they're all in pairs, so that would be 22 pairs. This is not including the sex chromosomes. Sex chromosomes are the ones that... Um, determine your gender. So, uh, your DNA, half of those are passed on to the child. So a human, so a man and a woman, their child would be half and half Mm -hmm. of their DNA. So if an angel were to mate with a human, half angel, half human, perfectly half. So that would mean that the... That Nephilim would, a first generation Nephilim would inherit 22 from the angel and 22 from a human. Correct. So the second generation would have um, 22 from the angel. Uh, The second generation would, if you divide 22 by 2, they would only have 11 genes. Right. To uh, divide it by 2 once again, and um, we have third generations. 5.5. 5. Mm-hmm. So um, basically, they would only have five genes from the father. Right. Divide that Correct. by two. Fourth generation. Fourth generation. Two. So basically, only two um, oh, genes less. And divide it by two for the fifth generations. Bingo. One. So, like, by the fifth generation. There is no pairs. It's it's past that point. Yeah, the the DNA would be entirely lost. And then if we take into consideration who Nimrod was, why it would say he began to be a giant, then things start making sense. On top of this, Aaron, you have to
1: understand that this is how even we do certain classifications in this very country. Now, you have to realize that even with Native American Indians— you still qualify for benefits until you're one-eighth Native American Indian, okay? Literally a different way of saying what you just stated. Once you get past that fourth gen, you're past the point of being able to divide by two and having a full set of pair of the angelic. So with this in mind, we have these these superstructures... Inside mythology. You already mentioned one. The Titans. Then you have what you refer to as the gods. And of course the further on. Down the line you go. You wind up with heroes. What they call the hero myths. Demigods. Demigods. Which is demigods. So. Elaborate on. Is there any technical data there? Now. Let me stress this. Do you have. Any technical data you can bring up that is at least bearable by two witnesses, i.e., is it in Greek mythology and, it is, in,
2: and is it in Sumerian mythology? Yes. So, um, in Sumerian mythology and in Greek mythology, we have the story of Uranus and Gaia. Um, in in uh, Uranus represents heaven. Gea represents Earth. And in Sumerian mythology, it is Anu and Ki. They both mean, they also mean, Heaven and Earth. This is where, if any of you are familiar with, you know, the people running around talking about the Anunnaki, what it means is the Heaven-Earth, reference to these two being one. Okay, so what you're stating is, is this
1: why people run around and say Mother Earth? what you're trying to say is 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 that this this first god that was an angel and the
2: second god was a cloven. yeah so and we don't have much of any story behind these two some put um them before that and um first i was i was you know wondering if if this represent the one true god and i came to the conclusion that it does not that usually In those mythologies, if God, the true God, shows any face, it's usually as the sun god. They usually refer to him as the sun. So, and I came to the conclusion that it's not Anu, who represents heaven. It's actually Utu, who represents the sun. So, um, then who is this Anu? And I came and just, I pieced together some things of what it might be talking about. And it seems to me that it must be referring to a survivor from the Flood. So putting down the the generations as I did, I put um, the first generation. Um, we have the angel Barakel um, uh, takes a wife, and he has a child named uh, Mahwai. We've talked it on an, on another show. He's also called Ahijah. Um, this is the father of the survivor and we will refer to this this giant as the survivor he was as far as we know we doubt he was on the ark um, unless if he was actually if he was only in the womb so we established that he must have been in the womb this child and this child who we refer as the survivor was the nephilim to survive the flood this um, made it to second generation This is a second-generation giant. This is what um, scripture calls a Nephilim. The first generation is better referred to as an Earthborn or a Gabor. The second generation is a Nephilim. So, um, this survivor of the flood, he has various names, but I equate him with heaven, the, the heaven god or Father Heaven as they refer to it. He would be Uranus in Greek mythology and Anu and Sumerian and he takes a wife of Earth. Now I'm not entirely sure who this is, but if that uh, from fragments of the book of the Giants I came to equate um, him with Vistapa um, if you take a little mess if you um, mess around with the linguistics of it it could say Kush Parash or Kush the Assyrian um, or the Persian. This would be where Perseus gets his name. We know that Perseus was viewed as a demigod and the 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 uh, the father of the Persians. So this um, this Cush, um, Parash, uh, I I I do this child Cush is referred to as the firstborn of Ham. I think this Cush Anu, we'll just refer to him as the survivor. The survivor may have been um, what is known as uh, it, it is possible to bear a child of a, of two different fathers right um and this um is very common in Greek, uh, in different mythologies especially in the one of the dioscuri or castor and pollux that one was the son of Zeus, and one was the son of a human. And we see in, um, that I've covered on in in, in, one of, in the last show, we talked about the house of Rapha And the child, um, it says that Ham had sex with his wife, this preg- his pregnant wife, in order to cover up for the fact that um, she was bearing a child of a Nephilim. So, possibly there are two Cushes. One would be a human, the son of Ham. He would have been the father of the Ethiopians and the Indians. And the second would be a giant. And this would be who we would call the father heaven. Now, this sort of um, having a twins by two different fathers is called superfecundation. And um, you can look into that. But it is very common um, in, in Especially Hellenism, um, like with with um, like I said with Castor and Pollux. So it's possible that that's what was going on. I have not been able to connect things, but uh, for sure. But um, let's go ahead and uh, jump into what the scripture has to say about Nimrod. Um, and. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, we are given the first um, very strange wording, okay? So first, it it gives the sons of Ham, uh, of Cush, as uh, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteka, and then it gets the sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dadan. And then it moves on to say, Cush became the father of Nimrod. So it separates Nimrod from all the others. And I've not seen this sort of thing in genealogies in the Bible before because usually whenever it does that it will still name the person within the list of all the others. So it would would still name Nimrod among them. Then would go on to explain. Then would go on and elaborate. But that's not the case here. It it separates Nimrod very clearly, and it's a very strange wording. Most translations would say, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. So um, this is a faulty translation, which is why I rely on the Greek. Here we have the Thompson that says, Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a giant on the earth. He was a giant hunter before the Lord God. For this cause, they say, like Nimrod, the giant hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babylon and Uruk, Akkad, Kalnei, and the land of Shinar.
1: Let's clarify for the listener, because I'm sure people uh, perk their ears up when you said that. What do you mean this is a faulty translation? You're saying that the Hebrew is wrong? No. See, in,
2: in the Hebrew it says, Gabor, hunter. Okay, Gabor can be translated as a mighty one, but it's also the main Hebrew word for a giant. And so this is a faulty English translation for what's being said. And going to the Greek, the Septuagint, now we understand what the Hebrew was meant to be translated and understood as. Okay, gotcha. So, the giant, so here we're given that he's a giant hunter. Okay, and this is a big problem. Most people who think of Nimrod, they think that he was the one who built the Tower of Babel. Why do they think that? Because um, it says that his king the beginning of his kingdom was in Babel in Hebrew. In Babel. Well, just so you know people, Babel is the lead Hebrew is the Hebrew word for Babylon. And we see in the Greek instead of interpreting as it as Babel, it says Babylon the full name. But even still, we go on to hear that it says he was a giant hunter. Yes. And that implies he's making a conquest of
1: giants. He is literally, look, this is just like a lion hunter or a deer hunter or a bear hunter. Nimrod
2: was targeting and hunting down giants. Yeah, and you see that when it says the beginning of his kingdom was in Babylon and a rook and a cat and Calnei and Shinar, here we see it's not... That, that's not true. He's not building anything. He's right. taking. He's taking. And so this is... So he took the kingdom of Babylon from someone else. And who do we think that is? It's a giant. Who is this giant? Various names are given to him in different mythologies. He is Kronos. He is um, Baal, Belus. You have multiple different names. So we will refer to him as the tyrant Nimrod himself is given multiple different names and different stories and different things, okay. um, such as Zeus and Hayek among the um, Armenians, but we will just refer to him as the hero. Okay, let's clarify here. So
1: you're saying that the event horizon is Noah's Ark? Yes. So the first gen of Nephilim there... We're giving that the title of survivor. Mm -hmm. And then this survivor has a child. This child we have labeled the tyrant. Now, with that being stated, you have taken a complete step in the totally opposite direction. You have given Nimrod the place of the hero. Mm-hmm. This is the hero myth. And in this one, the biblical text, you're calling that hero Nimrod, and he has usurped the power and the kingdom from his father, which was the tyrant.
2: Yes, the tyrant, who so, in Greek mythology you would call Kronos. The hero in that place is Zeus. But Zeus, Um, I mean, you couldn't take all Greek mythology and say that Zeus is Nimrod because... You know they just put dip, just paste different names on different things. Right. So who would we call the tyrant? The Bible gives us one name for sure, and this appears in Isaiah chapter fourteen verse twelve. Believe it or not, so I have referred to this as the name of Azazel. I have once again reconsidered. Um, this is the verse that says, um, in in your um, in the WEB. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. Okay, so some translations will say Lucifer. The Hebrew word there is Halel. And it says, Halel, shun, son of Shachar. Shachar means the dark one. And interestingly enough, Kush means the same thing. It means blackness. So I think that is the Shachar is refers to more more like a title than anything, referring to the Kush, the dark one. Now, this refers to even uh, this refers to pagan mythologies as well. So this, um, Isaiah in this passage refers to pagan mythology multiple times. Why would he be doing this? God is telling you there's truth behind it, but it's hidden. So, um, so here we're told that it says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will make, I'll sit on the, the mountain of assembly in the far north. The word for north is Sapan and referred to the mountain of the north. And this refers to the Baal Cycle. In, in the story of the Baal Cycle, Baal usurps the kingdom of his father El at the top of Mount Sapan. Or sepan. and this says, "I will ascend above the heights of the clouds; I will make myself like the Most High." Okay, and um, again, Shekhar in uh, pagan myth in Canaanite mythology is the son of El. So we're, um, so we're so we have these these stories that allude to about the uh, um, about a truth behind this, and Halel. I person my personal opinion is. It refers to the Babylonian name Enlil, which was their word for Baal or Baal. In most of your bio, in your Bibles they will say Bel Baal or Baal, however you will pronounce it. The um the one whom of whom Elijah said um, call upon your God and see if he can hear you. So this um, this is the one that the Israelites continually were going after, but with all these mythologies coming together, it seems to imply that that's who this was. This Hallel, Baal, um, but we will just refer to him as the tyrant to avoid confusion. So this is your tyrant? Yes. So I will um, take again Greek mythology. We're told that Kronos is told that if, when he bears that his son, his own son will usurp his throne from him. Now, um, we're given a little chronology in the, our only, um, evidence of the, um, of this Phoenician mythology. And, uh, it's only in completion in, um, Eusebius's, uh, text. And he uses, this is how it helped me. He uses the names uh, of the Greek equivalents for characters. So the L El- so <clears throat> a con- it begins with contemporary with these was Elion or the most high as it would translate it. His wife was Beru, and dwelt in the uh, about Biblis, and him was begotten. The one called heaven Uranus. So that from him, that element by which over us by reason of its excellent beauty is called heaven and his sister of the same parents, who was Earth, and by her beauty the Earth was called by the same name. The Most High, the father of these, having been killed in a conflict with beast, consecrated, and his children offered liberations and sacrifices to him. So, this tells me this Elion, this Most High being talked here, is actually the father of the survivor, the one who did not make it through the flood. The one who did not make it through the flood. This is priest. Okay, so now you've got your survivor. Yeah, the the one before the flood, this one who which the text refers to is Elion, This one, um, it says that he died with the, in a conflict with wild beasts. While well, we take from the Whoa. Book of the Giants that it says that he this. was fighting with Leviathan right. and was killed. That's
1: what the angels actually did come down and made and overthrew their minds to make them kill each other.
2: Yeah, so… He didn't make it through that event. So, but his son here, Uranus, takes a, a human wife who's referred to as Earth. And then it says, um, he became the father of El or Cronos. This is tyra- the tyrant. So let's get this. This is clear that it's referring to the tyrant. Um, so then we move on. And it says, um, but when the tyrant arrived at man's estate, acting by the advice and the assistance of Hermitrimegistus, who was his secretary, it says, in exact words, he opposed himself to his father, the survivor, that he might avenge the dignities which had been offered to his mother. Um, So, here we're told that this tyrant has the assistance of some secretary called Hermes Trimegistus. Now, by Hermes, you're talking about Mercury. Yeah. Okay, alright. But it says, a very strange title here. Trimegistus in Greek means the three times great. So, um, a lot of Christian historians believe that this was, this referred to... um, it was generally understood that Hermes Trismegistus was the um, king of Egypt, and that he was a priest king. They referred to him as, and he, um, they believe, and some Christians believe that somehow he prophesied to the Trinity by saying the Trismegistus. But we're not sure entirely what it means. There's so many different, you know, arguments to what this name, this title means. You can look into that. It's big in hermeticism. But um, this is the a certain figure who later on in this text is referred to as equivalent with the Egyptian Thoth, the god of writing and wisdom. This is the same. Uh, uh, this I have e- considered as equivalent to the Babylonian Nabu. He was also the god of wisdom and. Um and of <clears throat> writing, and that's pretty big, He <laughs> was the one who came up with the writing t- technique, writing things down, but um, the I drive this down as being an angelic entity. This is someone who would represent the second incursion. I've often
1: wondered about this when I looked into this individual, You could have stated it and tripped over your own tongue. What this could refer to is the big three. All educators know what the big three are. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. So this Hermes, Thrice, however you would like to put it. You just stated that he delivered writing. Well, writing comes in three ways. There's the writing of words, there's the reading of words, and the implementation thereof with mathematics. So, just as a footnote, people might want to consider that. I have long considered it. But go ahead.
2: So, we have the, um, the archaeological evidence to where the, taboral, the Tower of Babel is. We literally have the foundation of it. It's known as Borsippa, and uh, you can look this up, and it literally means the Tower of Tongues. So, it and this tower was the patron deity of that city. There, where it is, is Nabu. So it's made in his name. So here we are talking about a rebellion of this tyrant against his father. But, in a sense, this is rebellion against heaven. I mean, if you want to take it more literally than that. Rebellion against against heaven. And what is it said that, why did they build the Tower of Babel? Was to reach into heaven. And I mentioned in the passage in uh, Isaiah chapter 14, it says, I will make, set my throne above the stars of heaven. I think this giant, this tyrant, wanted to go into the sky. Whatever purpose, this angel was aiding him. But as far as we know, this is the second incursion, and this is very important, because this giant, which generation is he? He's generation number three. He's he's about to see the extinction of House of Repha. He was going to see the angel disappear from his blood. So, if he does not do something about it, um, the house of Rafa is going to disappear. So, I believe this is he makes some sort of pact with this angel, which we're going to talk about later. So, we are given various different stories, but here it says that... Um, it says, in the battle was taken a well-beloved concubine of the survivor, who was pregnant. And Cronos bestowed to her in marriage upon Dagon while she was with him. And she delivered a child and conceived by Uranus. And um, this child would be who we would call the hero. But she gives he gives this wife to Dagon. Who does Dagon represent? He is the fish, the fish god, and in um the Assyrians uh, the Babylonians give him a different name. Um, they call him Yuana, and they refer to him as literally a fish man. is not the is not a merman, okay? They literally describe him having a fish head and a man head, but he comes up out of the sea and he gives. Um, knowledge to humans. This seems a lot reminiscent to Azazel and Semyaza coming out of heaven and teaching knowledge to other people. So, in my opinion, this is talking about another angel. And if... So, here we see the tyrant is making a pact with an angel. The only way for him to preserve his seed is through this angel. Because why? Why is this? Okay, so he... First of all, he's facing the fourth generation, which would mean the end of his, um, would be the last descendant of his angel forefather. And uh, also, he has, we're told that he has had a prophecy told against him. We don't know who this prophet is, but I have an idea. It was probably Noah gives some sort of prophecy against him that his son is going to kill him. So he starts killing, murdering all of his children. This goes into pretty grotesque detail about, in this text here, about how he's sacrificing his children and um, cutting off their heads and such. Um, but Greek mythology, we're told, he starts eating them. I don't know if this is literal or not, but um, this Nimrod is able to, mis- to escape um, by marriage. And... Um, So later we're told that this this character who would be related to, like, who you would call Zeus, ends up killing him. So, where do we see this in chronology? Does history give us proof of this? So it is said that Nimrod is not attested to any historical documents. This is not true, and we can say that for sure because of um, David Ruhl, um, a famous scholar and historian who's written, written some um, archaeological connections and historical connections in the Bible So to certain characters. And he points straight to the earliest chron- chronological document in history, the Sumerian Kings List. That's literally all it's called, Sumerian king list. And in this text, Nimrod is given a slightly alternate way to spell it, but it's called Enmerkar. The last part, kar, means a hunter. So um, we're pretty sure that this is who he is. So, um, But you go a name right before him, and it gives the name for the tyrant, Enmenbargesi who made the land of Elam submit, became king and ruled for 900 years. Aga, his son, ruled for 625 years. And then it says, then Kish was defeated and the kingship was in Aana. So, um, then it says, in Ayana, Keshki Ajgashur is basically who we would refer to as the survivor, and it says the son of Utu. So who is Utu? As I referred to earlier, he's the sun god who represent represent the one true god. And when it calls him the son, I re- I acknowledge it as adoption. And this is why the survivor of all would be called this. The Nimrod under the name Ninurta and Marduk in other myth in other Mesopotamian myth. He is also called son of Utu sometimes, and yet sometimes he's called the son of Baal or the tyrant because of adoption. So it says that this, um, that the survivor entered the sea and disappeared. That's all we're told of. Then it says Enmerkar, his son, became king of Uruk. He built Uruk and became king and ruled 420 years. And it goes on, and it says um, that lugal banada the shepherd ruled for 1,200 1, years Demizud, the fisherman, whose sea was whose city was kurura ruled for 1000 of the year <coughs> 1000 years and it says he captured the tyrant single handed gilgamesh whose father was a phantom the lord of kulaba ruled for 126 years so we are given some really interesting names here. But it really helped me connect that we are told that uh, Lugal Banada we see in another text called um, uh, in another text called Enmerkar and the Lord of Arata and its sequel we are told that um, Lugal Banada is one of Enmerkar's generals, not his actual son, but one of his generals. And we see here that he succeeded him in the kingship. So let's—I have another text here from—it's uh, known as the Chronicle of John of Nikiu, ne, and it's basically a Ethiopian text um, originally written by a, guy, a bishop in Egypt. There's some things I don't agree with in this thing, but it gives us some very interesting connections. Kronos who's of the giant race of Ham. So this translation here will say Shem because of a uh, translator uh, altered it, but it actually does say Ham in the actual text. But he altered it for the reason that it says the firstborn of Noah. And we know that Shem, that Ham was actually the youngest son of Noah. So this is kind of an interesting word here. And it says, thus he was named after the first plant, which was, planet, which was Saturn. He had a son, named uh, Dom, basically Dominus, which means Lord, that points us also to Baal, or the tyrant. He was a warrior, warrior, a redoubtable man, and a slayer of men. He was a ruler of Persia and Assyria. He had married an Assyrian woman named Rhea. Rhea, the wife of Cronos or the tyrant. This Rhea... We are told that she's an Assyrian, which is what connected Asher, which what, which directly plugged you in. Now you're into the Assyrian rising. Yeah. We are told that Nimrod's kingdom is Assyria later in the scripture. And yet we know that Asher was a descendant of Shem, not Ham. How is this a mixture of the bloodlines? So it seems like Asherah, Literally, Asherah appears as, a, as the queen of heaven in other parts in scripture, right. of course, from degraded um, mythology over time. But it literally means it's a feminine form of Asher. So it tells us that she was an Assyrian, which gives us direct connections to why. And later, and here in this text, it says, she bore to him two sons, Zeus, whom they called, uh, whom you would call uh It says Zeus, but it would better be Nimrod. And it says, and Ninus, who built the royal city of Assyria. So this is who I think Ninus, okay, there are no historical documents that relate to this other than Greek, who say that the person who built Nineveh was Ninus. Whoever this person is, but I think it's this Lugalbanada here in this a Sumerian text, who is actually not his son, but his brother. From the best chronology that I connect, can connect, uh, Nimrod did not have any children from of that I can find. So, he didn't have any children, but he let his brother reign, and his son, Demizud, who you're told is actually the son of Ninus Ninyes. So, and then we can see that his son also helped him in the taking him down so taking down the tyrant so here we have a lot of connections a connection to the by reason why there was a second incursion why there was a tower of babel and why nimrod was used to avenge why nimrod was used by god so Here, this is a big issue. People always look at Nimrod as the bad guy. There are very few who will ever attest to Nimrod as being a servant of God, even though the scripture is pretty much pretty clear about that. So, here's what we're looking
1: at here. This guy is to the last string. He realizes that the angelic seed is about ready to pass from him. He's got to have an heir. He must go past that fourth generation. He's not looking at at bloodlines by his own loins, so to say. He's wanting to propagate the angelic seed, the heavenly seed. He wants to propagate that. So this is why this text states that his wife was given to another. That means that this
2: woman, this queen of heaven was cloven. Correct? Well, I'm not sure if someone becomes cloven when they... when they. I mean, we've talked about that someone becomes cloven if they um, have sex with an angel, but I don't know if that happens the same if you have sex with a Nephilite or you know, someone down the line. I don't know when that happens. We, uh, But this is what they were trying to do. To re... To
1: re... Uh, how do I put that... To re-angelicize
2: the seed. Yeah, and literally to replenish it. By which it, they could still be called demigods. So, let's go back. Okay,
1: so you have the survivor, the tyrant, the hero. Which one of them was doing this? The tyrant. The tyrant wanted to propagate his seed past the hero. Yeah. So he wanted another injection of angelic bloodline. To do this,
2: he took a clover. Do you realize that they would have to do this? Right. This is that that it was imperative that there was a second incursion. If they did not have a second incursion, then David would have never met Goliath. Right, exactly. David would have never met Goliath. Right. By that time it would have
1: been a dead issue. But take note. Okay, let's let's refresh everybody. Even in the United States, right now, you're only available for Native American benefits to this exact biblical term, fourth generation, fourth gen. So with that in mind, they were kind of desperate, and it magnifies the simple fact as to why this, well, this hero rose up and why God would
2: use him. This is this was really important to something that you asked me the other day. Why would it say that Nimrod became a giant for the very purpose that you know he technically only had a pair left in his genes? Right. I mean, as far as we know, he probably wasn't literally physically a giant. Might have been, you know, generally, you know, looking like a human. He might have had some abilities different. Oh, like more heightened than ours, but other than that, he probably looked human. And um, we know one thing: he knew how to take down giants. Right. Exactamundo. But we are told in scripture his conquest his conquest had only one purpose: was to hunt giants. It wasn't to gain kingdom or obstinacy. But once he took down the giants over those kingdoms, then it's basically his now. And in my view, this is why he didn't have a dynasty set up under him, but gave it to his brother. Why he would want nothing to do with having some rulership of his own.
1: Interesting indeed. Interesting indeed. Well... So this seriously opens up this this topic as to well, now the second incursion becomes
2: mandatory.
1: They wanted to propagate it.
2: And I see a third show coming up. The Valley of Sedim. The Valley of Sedim. Just talking about that today. Well, uh,
1: we also have quite a lot of questions to answer. We still got I don't know, maybe even two more of the Extreme Question
2: episodes. But, uh, Aaron, how can people get a hold of you? Well, I'm open on Messenger. On Facebook, you can get a hold of me. On Instagram, I am punkmo underscore rocker. So, um, I, I don't post a lot of, like, biblical stuff, but, you know, you can get a hold of me on there. If, for some reason, you don't have Messenger.
1: All right, and uh, the main website
2: is according
1: to the scripture.wordpress.com. You can catch our stuff on uh, Fringe Radio Network, uh, YouTube, according to the scripture. Um, we're into a lot of flux here uh, with the uh, current crisis we're under, but um, until next time, ladies and gentlemen, God bless.